This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. With us, a very special guest. I was quite excited about meeting Dean. Dean Gurney, he's the president of Sands & Associates, has over 30 years of experience practicing in the areas of personal and corporate insolvency and restructuring. Uh, He's got skills, deep experience, and of course, meeting with clients, that's incredibly valuable. Recognizing the stress and confusion that those facing financial difficulty often feel. And I I know, Dean, that uh, Blair and I often talk about the real impact that it has on folks when they're just taking that step into your door to sit down and talk about the the particular situation, financial situation they're in and and needing some help. And and, uh, I just think from everything I've heard, you guys do such a good job when it comes to this. Well, we try and do our best for all our clientele, and and hopefully they leave successful with a new venture and a new look in life. Yeah, I, th- I think I think that's pretty true. I think that's pretty true. Um, so this segment, uh, we're talking about the history of insolvency in Canada. Now that may sound a little dry for some, but I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, just a little bit that you told us before we got started here. Um, it's a fascinating history. I mean, I look mm-hmm. at debt, the history of debt, the whole concept over hundreds of years and it's you know it used to be something that we'd go to debtors prison for that's so right. we've we've come a long way yeah and that's very true you know the the ironic thing about uh, debtors prison is, is that you'd go to debtor, debtors prison serve your time and come out and you still owe the money still <laughs> owe right? the money <laughs> so oh, man. Uh, yeah so oh, it, it was, what you, this is what you call an unsuccessful uh, regime here <laughs> but anyway right. But uh, but you know over a, over a period of time, uh, it, of course, it's all English law, of course, and we descended yeah. from that, and and that's where uh, confederation started from is English law, and and when we made up our constitution, bankruptcy law fell under the federal federal uh, system, and uh, we uh, started off with uh, bankruptcy law, and of course. Nobody likes bankruptcy law because you're eliminating debt and everybody should pay back their debt. And mm. so there is great turmoil in what to do here. Well, it's a per- such a personal thing, right? You feel obligated and, and uh, just the need, oh, I need to make this right. Yeah, and that and that even today, that's exactly today. what people are doing. Even though we have the advancement of credit and the amount of credit we have, people still want to pay off their debt. We see that mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah, and we obviously we we have to work with people, and we have to con. Well, I won't say convince them. We have to kind of work with them to see the best option for them and make them uh, so that they can uh, come out of there successful. Yeah, the benefit of taking it on and figuring it out, and then yeah. getting it done. But yeah, there was a there was a period of time when. Uh, uh, there was no bankruptcy law in Canada, uh, so we that uh, uh, and uh, in the eight, from 1880 to about 1919, there was no bankruptcy law, mainly because wow. we were kind of a rural uh, jurisdiction, and mm-hmm. and of course you went to your family store, you paid your bill, or you didn't mm-hmm. get anything. So you know, so what, there wasn't really need for bankruptcy law at that time, uh, and so uh, but you know, uh, with the advent of uh, industrialization and uh, railways and uh, manufacturing and so on, a real need came. And uh, 
uh, there was a couple of re major recessions in the world during that period of time, one being the Klondike Gold Rush, which ours in British Columbia was basically <laughs> the gold Klondike Gold Rush, yeah. uh, of which we became uh, part uh, part. That's where most of our population came from, Americans at that time, obviously. But then, uh, then there was the First World War, which there was a major recession just prior to the uh, World War One, which. A lot of the people that lost a lot of money in that period of time, they ended up signing up and going off to war. You know, that's one way of eliminating your debt. <laughs> right. Anyway, what else to do? Yeah. Well, that's right because there was no, there was no law to, uh, to basically to to distribute your assets or to eliminate your debt. Mm -hmm. well, and when the when the soldiers came back uh, from that, that's when we ended up with a new bankruptcy act in 1919. Basically. Interesting. Because that's what I find so interesting too, as we talk about you know the bankruptcy system here a lot. And it's such an integral part of a well-functioning economy is having a system where you can deal with failed business ventures, where it's not a life sentence. If you can't pay somebody back, you can actually restructure. So knowing there was that period of time, 1880 to 1919, where there wasn't that opportunity, um, you know, the economy couldn't advance, I think, at that point. Well, and as you might expect, there was pandemonium when it came to a, a, came to a liquidation because uh, the provinces started introducing their own laws at that oh. point in time and there were some provinces that had none there were some provinces had a little and there were some problems provinces that did uh, more mm -hmm. so it was like a pandemonium across the country and it was basically a free-for-all of who could get the assets first uh, was the guy that was going to be successful but the, mm. the real point was there was no elimination of debt which is really fundamental to bankruptcy uh, or insolvency law Hmm. So what happened then? So it was, you know, you said 1919. Um, so I'm thinking, you know, roaring 20s and then pre-Great Depression and being a trustee myself. So my understanding is bankruptcy and insolvency it came about around that depression time. Am I correct on that? Well, and that was the, that was the next thing that came uh, came about is that when the depression hit, uh, the, the major thing in Canada was railways, okay? Mm -hmm. And railways were having a huge problem, which led to a new piece of legislation called the Creditors, uh, the Company Creditors Arrangement Act. CCAA for uh, uh, the scenario on it, and um, and that's basically what that why that piece of legislation and it still exists today. We still use that piece of legislation today to reorganize major corporations hmm. on the same way they did in 1930. Hmm. Uh, so targeted at railroads, but yeah, now any big restructuring in Canada is under that CCAA legislation. I think people read about you know the Air Canadas of the world or things like that. They all restructure under that same law. Exactly, and and, and, it, and it continues on. So you know, a lot of this stuff is is um, is kind of what we have from um, history here. And and then there was a major readjustment of all the of the act in 1949 was basically, and that's the, that fundamentally that's the act that we still use today. Hmm. And there's some weird things from 1949 that we have even today, which is through the legislation, and uh, it still exists today. But it really, it's really kind of uh, un not applicable. Hmm. You know, like a good example is that you have to have a thousand dollars worth of debt to go into bankruptcy. Yeah. Okay, well, think about a thousand dollars in 1949. Right. That was basically almost the half a price of a car. Yes. Mm -hmm. Give or take a bit. Right. So. If we had a half a price of an average car today, say twenty two thousand maybe, would that be mm. kind of a car? So it should be about eleven thousand dollars for people to right. go into debt or somewhere around that yeah. point, right? 
Of course, it's only a thousand dollars. That's so interesting, mm. hey? So, so the access used to be a, some ways. used to be a really high bar. If you think about it, this was for the really big things that went wrong. Here's your restructuring. Now you know people can owe a thousand dollars on a credit card bill. They know what they're going to clear. So I get that question a lot. You know, what do you have to owe to be into bankruptcy? I'm like, well, it's an old law, and if you owe more than a thousand dollars, you could do it. Do we have anybody filing for a thousand dollars today? No, but um, you do have people filing sometimes for ten thousand or five thousand or something. You know, something that's still really important to them but comparatively a lot less than back in, you know, 1949. That's interesting. Any other sort of archaic parts of the law that you that you see or that you're aware of? Uh, there's lots of them, but we won't, sure. spend, we won't waste our time <laughs> on it. But there is another one that's kind of interesting. Yeah, tell me. One is, uh, one is as you might expect, uh, in 1949, uh, uh, gambling was not something that was uh, uh, looked upon favorably in 1949. So they put a specific section in, in the act, basically, that if you your debt is a result of gambling, then is, is you, the trustee has to oppose the discharge and a judge has to adjudicate upon it. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm. But if you look at, uh, because alcohol was quite a, quite uh, quite acceptable at that particular point in time, there's, the act is completely silent on alcohol or anything related to that. Hmm. So if gambling's an addiction, that's the one that they chose, but alcohol or drugs or other addictions... They didn't get in there. Silent. Hmm. Interesting. So, and we have, and that, that, you know, what would, this is a businessman's act, and we really try and work with the act and make it work so that it, so that it, it works for people, and we have to we have to work around these old uh, legislation in order to make this thing work. Because, yeah, even there was no credit cards. If you think about it back then, Dean, what do we see? Everybody's got the credit card, the payday loan. So we're using old legislation, but I think it's aged okay. It's still dealing with modern debt, but they had no contemplation of that at that time, right? Well, absolutely. And, that, you know, you got to remember, banks were open from 10 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon. And if you <laughs> didn't make hours. it to the bank and you didn't get your money out, that was it. You just yeah. had no money. Uh, and, you know, the, it was good that they had little corner stores that were able to give you credit, but that was about uh, that was about the extent of credit at that particular point in time. Yeah, we've so, come a long way. Oh, absolutely in that. So mm. from there, from 1949, basically there was absolutely no amendments until <laughs> 1992. Wow. So nothing <laughs> happened. Even, you know, there's been a couple of recessions during there. And there was a bankruptcy act at one time that was, gonna, that was in the Senate. Unfortunately, it failed because oh. they called an election. So it died mm. on the order paper. But that, that's basically it. We haven't had anything since 1992 when they brought in consumer proposals, which was uh, which uh, you've talked a lot about on oh, this yeah. program. So that's basically when that came in, and okay. and uh, the the ability to do counseling, and um, and then of course uh, Revenue Canada became an unsecured creditor. They were a preferred creditor at that point before prior to that, because then they became an unsecured creditor, which was a huge uh, redevelopment of the act in that with regards to that. So what's the difference there, Dean? If if Revenue Canada was a preferred creditor as opposed to unsecured, because we give people hope all the time. We can deal with tax debt. So what was it before 92 then? Well, they were a preferred credit, meaning if there was any distribution, Revenue Canada had to be paid out first. Oh, they got everything. They got <laughs> everything. Basically, that's what happened. Uh, yeah. you know, unless it was a small debt, they got everything and then the creditors got whatever was left over. Right. So put the government ahead of everybody else mm-hmm. and now they're on par with right. everybody else, which so seems e- more free. Evenly more distributed yeah. between yeah. everyone. Yeah. And that, that was a big movement at that time was to basically get that uh, paired off. 
There was also amendments in 1997 that brought in um, uh, child support. Uh, they became a preferred creditor. And uh, in 2009, that they brought in WEPA, which is the wage uh, program that basically allowed people to claim uh, wages as a priority creditor there. So that's what kind of what drove those, uh, those amendments through Parliament. But since 2009... We haven't seen a word, and there's no word on the horizon if there's any amendments coming. And they're dearly needed. Well, and, and I guess it's, it's the will of the federal government of the day, right, as to what they think is important and what they aren't interested in addressing? Oh, absolutely. This is all politically it's motivated. Political. You know, no politician yeah. wants to do deal with bankruptcy law because there's no winners. It's not sexy. It's yeah. not sexy. Oh, there's no winners. You know, like if you're dealing with Bankruptcy Act, you're dealing with people screaming at you all the time, and a right. politician <laughs> doesn't want that at any time. So, <laughs> yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. So interesting. <laughs> We've been talking with Dean Gurney, who's president of Sands & Associates, uh, over 30 years of experience practicing in the areas of personal and corporate insolvency. Um, so here's the thing. If you've been listening and, and you're, and you hear, you're hearing little things that you feel like, oh, gee, I should take a look at that for me, or that doesn't, that, that might relate to my situation. These, uh, this is what you need to do. First of all, go to the website for Sands and Associates at sands-trustee.com. They have a wonderful large section of frequently asked questions. So they've got questions and answers giving you just a lot of information to know if the next step should be for you to give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. They'll give you a free consultation, first free meeting, so you can sit down and say, look, this is my situation. I don't know what to do. What do you think? As well, to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk about all different kinds of debt and how we incur it. Um, But the unexpected one, I think this is a good segment, Mm -hmm. the stuff that just shows up. And it's hard to believe that that can happen but we know it can, big oh, time. Absolutely. And a lot of clients that I see, you know, they're managing just fine. And then suddenly there's some shock, you know, maybe they get sick, a kid gets sick, they divorce, something like that. Um, so it's some kind of external shock to the system, something unexpected. And that's what causes them to come and see us. Um, and, you know, if everybody had an emergency fund of, you know, six months of fixed expenses around, I'd be a lot less busy. But the situation that we live in is a lot of folks find it really tough to save money on a monthly basis. So when something happens, happens, they just don't have some cushion to absorb it, unfortunately. I know. I, I remember hearing that uh, hearing that sentiment before about how, oh yeah, you want to have two, two months worth of mm-hmm. uh, expenses put away. And I said that to somebody and they just looked at me like I'd arrived from Mars, like who in their right mind is able to do that? Well, the average person just isn't, right? And, and that's Very true. Very challenging. Yeah. And especially if, you know, maybe if you're small town, wherever, but in some place like Vancouver, Lower Mainland in BC, it's very expensive to keep your head above water here. Yeah, very expensive to do that. So you put Canada Revenue Agency right at the top of this, unexpected mm-hmm. debt. How is it that that's unexpected for folks? Well, that's a good question because for some people, you know, if they're self-employed, they know they're going to owe a balance to CRA every year. It's anticipated. They put some money aside and they pay the money owing. But for some people, CRA debt can come without warning like a bolt out of the blue. And it could be some of these scenarios, you know, you've got a new accountant who's made mistakes or they tried to use deductions that weren't allowed. So the so, new person 
is seeing the errors of the old person or the new person is making. Doesn't matter, I guess, Both, right? Really? Yeah. Either way, you're getting a reassessment or something back from CRA where you didn't anticipate any of that. You thought your business expenses were fine, your medical expenses or whatever, and CRA has disallowed those and suddenly you've got a balance owing. Got that it. can be unexpected. Um, in some cases, you've got additional employment income and not enough tax was withheld at source. So for many people, they take on a second job, a part-time job, a side hustle, and the first year when they do their, ta- their taxes, they realize that, oh my God, I was not deducted enough on the second job, and they end up having to pay back a bunch of this extra income that they've gotten. So we've really got to make sure if you're taking on a second job or something like that, that you are getting extra taxes withheld or that you're putting the money aside in your bank account knowing that CRA is going to come and look for it. Uh, And, you know, a third way here that CRA can be unexpected is if you become self-employed and you just for whatever reason, haven't done all the right homework. You yeah. don't know all the requirements. Um, you don't know that you're supposed to collect and remit GST, but CRA shows up a year later and says, where's the 5% of your sales you've been collecting? And they don't want to hear that Gee, you didn't know you were supposed to do that. It's your responsibility to know all the rules and to play within them. Yeah, very good. And I, you know, you've said that they're a very powerful creditor, CRA. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced this just in a tiny bit in a situation where a parent had passed mm-hmm. and, and uh, they owed money on a, a particular thing and when I talked to CRA and said look my you know my parent has passed and mm-hmm. uh, she didn't know that this was supposed to have da 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 and really didn't matter yeah, you might find some that their bedside manner is different than others, and some are more understanding um, than other agents at CRA, but at the end of the day, they've got a job to do. And I had to pay it regardless, yeah. right? And as a powerful creditor, they might have been saying things like, well, either you pay us or we're going to start seizing assets, exactly. or we're going to start seizing income, or different things we like that. We didn't go there, but it was just Thank like, God. oh, come on, yeah. you should be, because everybody else is so thoughtful and considerate when you've lost a parent, Usually, and you're right? trying to yeah. fix up their uh, estate or accounts or whatever. This person was not. Uh, a little compassion can go everywhere in this yes. in this world, right? I wasn't getting that. Oh. Was not getting that. Yeah, most of the time with CRA, if there is a balance owing, they'll work with you up to six months. So, you know, if you owed $1,000, paid off over the next six months, they'll be just fine with that. They'll charge you a bit of interest. But anything beyond six months, if you need a multi-year payment plan or if you can't pay off the whole amount and you're trying to make a deal, those are losing battles with CRA on your own. You have to work with a trustee to get that done. Yeah, a licensed insolvency trustee. Exactly. The only ones that can actually deal with CRA in any significant way for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, ICBC debt. Yeah, so sometimes people ask... ICBC is incredibly in debt, I might add. Oh my God, the billion dollar (laughs) loss, something like that. So They're in trouble. Yeah, this is different uh, from your perspective, which I guess we all support ICBC. But anyway, um, a large amount owing to ICBC, by definition, that's an unexpected event. You know, you'd never anticipate to be in an accident. And of course, you'd never expect not to be covered for that accident. Yeah. Um, So, you know, in some cases, if someone was impaired at the time of the accident, ICBC will deny all coverage um, and then also hold them responsible for amounts that they have to pay out to the other party. Um, in some cases, and these are some of my youngest clients I ever see, if they you know, were driving, um, they had the N or the L and they didn't have the experienced driver with them and they get into an accident, suddenly they're responsible for everything and mm. ICBC is not covering a penny. Interesting. Now, the thing with ICBC debt is it's basically government debt. So they can do the same things that Revenue Canada can do. They can seize assets, they can seize wages. And then what's often of even greater impact too, or equal, um, is they can not allow you to get your license. Right. So if you want to drive in the province of BC, you have to come to terms with ICBC. Now, as a licensed insolvency trustee, uh, ICBC comes under your umbrella as exactly. well. Okay. That's a debt that we can deal with. Now, there are certain parts of ICBC debt that no matter what, you can't get away from. So if you 
were driving drunk and killed somebody and the court imposes a fine. I'm sorry, a trustee can't help you with that. But we check everything before we go forward. We've got to contact at ICBC. We make sure it's a debt that we can deal with. We can help restructure. And then the person doing either a bankruptcy or a proposal, ICBC debt just becomes another one of those debts. Got it. Um, and the, the life event debt. And I know you've spoken about this before, that that is often the, the situation for folks that you sometimes see is it something very unforeseen somebody within their family got mm-hmm. ill uh, or weren't able to work or they themselves weren't able to work as a result and disability didn't cover the expenses and mm-hmm. so forth and so on yeah, and the most common one that we see, because we definitely see, you know, the disability point of view, um, but it's when a relationship breaks down. Mm. So whether it's a marriage or common law or something like that, there's a huge impact. And, you know, people often thought, well, bankruptcy causes divorce. It, it's the reverse. Divorce often causes bankruptcy. Fair enough. And there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, you know, first off is that there can be a splitting of debts. So if one partner has incurred all of the debt, um, the other partner can suddenly make a claim against that person and say, hey, you owe me a bunch of this money that I've incurred on debt. If the person can't pay that, you know, they can. There can be a court battle that can ensue about that. Uh, there's the cost of legal proceedings. So quite often, if it's acrimonious, if there's a lot of you know really bad blood and the parties aren't talking, well, talking through lawyers is about the most expensive conversation you're ever going to have, and yeah. can take a long time. And sometimes in the end, you'll spend more in legal fees than the assets you were trying to protect. Um, but not to say in every case it's the wrong thing to fight. In some cases, it's the right thing to do. Sure. Uh, and then there's the cost of reestablishing oneself. So suddenly, instead of having one household for two people two separate households, they need to buy everything again, they've got you know double the cost typically on a monthly basis. So there can be a lot of impacts of relationships breaking down. Yeah, and besides the fact that it's all consuming and stressful and all of that, it can be brutal for folks. Oh yeah, no, just the, as you're saying, the stress of going through it, of the uncertainty, quite often there's kids involved as well. Yes. Um, you know, there can be a custody battle. Um, you know, there can be a lot of things that can really add to a stress level. And then the monetary on top of that, sometimes people will really focus on, I've just got to get through this battle. I've got to get what I need out of here. And then I'm going to solve my, my financial problems. Right. And then when they pop up from air, you can suddenly see, well, there's all these legal fees, there's payday loans, there's credit cards. And the person's been, you know, living no sort of an existence for a period of years. So what would be the first and the last minute here in this segment for somebody walking in the door in that situation? Like that must be very, I mean, it'd be very heartbreaking for sure mm-hmm. that they've had to go through this. But what do you do? What are the first sort of things that you would do? Yeah, the, the toughest thing is the way I describe it, is the interaction between, you know, marital separation, law breakdown and that and insolvency. It's not clean. Um, so sometimes, especially if a proceeding is not finished, it can be very difficult to file a bankruptcy or a proposal if you don't know if that person's going to have a half title to the house or mm. no title to the house, if they're going to have to pay $2,000 a month support or $200 a month support. So in some cases, the right answer is, okay, we need to see this thing play out, um, and then we can decide on what the right restructuring option is. But I would still encourage people to come in and talk to a trustee. You know, If nothing else, a trustee could help you know, write something to your creditors and saying, here's what I'm dealing with. I've been to see a trustee. My intention is to offer you a proposal as soon as I'm able to do so. Right. Just another set of ears on the situation for sure. Uh, you're listening to Dollars and Cents. For information on any of the services that we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this.
Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And we're going to talk with Shane Ramsey, who's CEO of BC Housing. bchousing.org is the website, and just in case, and I went on the website, it's chalk full of good information for folks. Uh, Just in case you didn't know, BC Housing develops, manages, and administers a whole range of subsidized housing options across the province. They also carry out lots of research and education that benefits the residential construction industry, consumers, and the affordable housing sector. And uh, Shane Ramsey's with us. He's been CEO of BC Housing since May 2000. Welcome, Shane. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Now, it's no secret that uh, residents of Vancouver and the Lower Mainland were all feeling the pinch of climbing costs of living, let alone our housing costs. Uh, BC Housing talks about all the different resources uh, that may be available to individuals facing those housing challenges. That's what we're going to talk about, or at least start talking about today, Shane. Great. I look forward to it. Great. So what kind of role does BC Housing, what kind of role does BC Housing's policy play in the province? Can you talk about it sort of in an umbrella? Uh, what's the umbrella that you that you cover? And then we'll di- dive in a little bit. Sure. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for having me on. Um, BC Housing is a provincial crown agency. It was created in 1967 and largely to manage government's commitment to subsidized housing, and that was its primary focus early on. Its mandate has evolved and changed since then, but we develop, manage, and uh, manage and administer a range of both subsidized and affordable housing across the province. We also have responsibility for the Homeowner Protection Act. That's a builder licensing, uh, home warranty system. Um, every builder who builds a home for sale in British Columbia has to be licensed. And we're also uh, a National Housing Act insured lender. So we do play a major role in um, social and affordable housing um, lending. The mortgage portfolio is in the range of uh, $2.75 billion currently. And so we, we touch every aspect of the housing continuum, right from emergency shelter and housing for the homeless, uh, through to transitional and supportive housing, uh, independent housing, rent assistance in the private market, affordable rental, and more and more looking at um, opportunities to promote affordable home ownership as well. Now, I know you, you said that subsidized housing was the original purpose of uh, the organization being set up, and you've been there since 2000. What would you say the biggest, the biggest change is for BC Housing's focus uh, and sort of the housing situation that we face now? Well, I think largely up until the late 90s and early 2000s, um, the the role of BC Housing had really been in the area of um, subsidized housing for uh, families, uh, seniors, and people with disabilities, especially when the homeless crisis began to hit in the late late 1990s and the early 2000s. A large focus changed to to a focus on on options to um, assist folks that were struggling with homelessness, at risk of homelessness, particularly those with mental health and addictions. And so a lot of work done over the past 15 years uh, focused in that area. And also lately, looking at that whole continuum and, and then an emerging focus over the last few years on affordable rental and affordable ownership. And so that rounds out you know, government's um, involvement across the housing continuum. It's kind of a hard thing to take on, right? I mean, boy, oh boy, Lower Mainland is like the number one place that people want to live these days. Uh, Not everybody can afford it. Uh, It's a huge task that you guys have undertaken. 
Yeah, for, for sure. And uh, affordability is certainly uh, acute in uh, in the Lower Mainland, but also it is an issue of Southern Vancouver Island, the Okanagan, and communities across the, the north and the interior. They may have different types of, of issues. Some relate to the condition of the housing stock, some relate to affordability, and a lot relate simply to availability of good quality rental housing. Can we talk specifically about where BC Housing's been able to really give folks a hand? Sure. Um, uh, happy to talk about that. Um, really have um, worked with our, our partners in local government and with the health authorities in trying to um, deal with the, with the emerging issue of, of homelessness. It's a very complex issue. Um, it really has, um, uh, it's multidimensional, ha- has a lot of um, issues around mental health and addictions, and, and it often manifests itself as, as a housing issue because that's where we see folks, um, see folks um, struggling. And, and so really it's about creating those partnerships with local governments, with health authorities, with the private and nonprofit sectors around, uh, around uh, creating opportunities to move folks inside with the appropriate range of supports. And, and, and that's a real difficult challenge. We see it especially across the lower mainland with, um, you know, the tent cities that uh, b- begin to uh, spring up, uh, the tent city that happened in Victoria over the, about, uh, about a year ago, and even in some of the smaller communities across the north, the interior, and the valley, um, all, all struggling with, uh, with that issue. What can you do? What can BC Housing do, or what are you trying to do to assist folks? Uh, so a, a number of, uh, of things um, have, have worked quite well. Um, rather than treating homelessness as, as a, just a homogeneous issue, um, there are outreach teams, uh, nonprofit outreach teams that operate in communities across the province, and those try to connect with homeless folks where they are, in the park, uh, under a bridge, by the, by the river, and get them connected into, into services. Um, our shelter system in, in and around 2006 uh, was gradually changed to a 24-7 operation. So rather than that cycle of, of homeless folks lining up at night and then leaving in the morning, shelters now, 95% of them open 24-7. And the purpose uh, during uh, opening during the day is for folks to connect with um, outreach teams, to look at um, housing opportunities, to look at uh, connections to health services, income assistance, even um, education and um, employment opportunities. And so, uh, you know, a lot of effort around around the individual connections to try to break that cycle of homelessness. That sounds like like a, a great approach, Shane. And, you know, from, from our perspective at, at Sands and Associates, you know, we often feel that, yeah, finances is just one piece of, you know, a suite of challenges that people are facing. And, you know, sometimes housing is a big component that they've got to sort out before they can even, you know, think about dealing with, with a debt situation. Now, in, in the clients that, that I see, um, you know, sometimes they do have, you know, some participation in BC housing programs. And I'm wondering, you know, for listeners out there who might not have a good idea, uh, you know, the nuts and bolts of how these programs actually work, could you give a bit of an overview of, you know, the rental assistance program to start? Sure. Um, uh, so there are a number of, of, of uh, of programs, you know, there are the the system of emergency shelters and transition and supportive housing, but there are also major programs that provide rent assistance for folks in the private market. And there are two main programs there. The Shelter Aid for Elderly Renters program assists some um, uh, seniors 60 and over uh, with rent assistance um, that they pay to their private landlord. Uh, there are almost 22,000 senior households that receive safer assistance, and that totals almost $200 a month. There is um, a similar program for rent assist, called the Rental Assistance Program for low-income families, making under uh, $35,000, and there are almost 10,000 families receiving that assistance, and that amounts to about $400 uh, per month. 
uh, past couple of years, we've also introduced a homeless prevention program, and that provides rent assistance to homeless folks um, to get connected with units in the private market, and those, comes with, those come with much-needed supports so that folks are checked in on and making sure that they have a stable tenancy. So that suite of programs provides rent assistance to folks in the private market and a lot of information available on our website about how to apply. Uh, you can apply online to, uh, to any of those three programs. I'm wondering, uh, too, if somebody's listening right now, besides going to the website, uh, Shane, is there, is, is, there, is there an easy way for folks to get a hold of you or to, to get access to BC Housing to ask those questions, especially if somebody's listening who has somebody within their family that could benefit um, from one of these programs? Oh, sure. Our, our 1-800 line will get you right to, um, right to our applicant services uh, department, and they can explain the whole range of options from, you know, the, the, the actual physical housing that you can apply for, as well as the available programs that could, that could provide support for where you're living right now. If you qualify, um, you would get that monthly um, rent assistance uh, for, uh, to help with your rent in the private market. So calling the 1-800 line, uh, our folks will take you through the range of options that could be available to suit your individual circumstances. That's great, Shane. And um, I work in, in my Langley office quite a bit, and I just know a number of my, my clients. Um, you know, the SAFER program is literally a lifesaver for them. They would not be able to be in the place that they are in right now without that type of assistance. So, you know, I do encourage folks to, to reach out. Um, now, just asking, you know, some of the, the, the detail there. So SAFER, for example, is it a standard subsidy across the board? Is there some qualification? If you're over age 60, obviously that's one qualification, but are there other parameters? Yeah, so we would look at, um, we only subsidize up to an eligible rent level, mm-hmm. and, 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 and so that's also available on the website. One of the useful tools, uh, Blair, on the website is, um, is a rent calculator, so a, a person could go on, put in their um, income, any available deductions, and, and that would assess your eligibility and, and also give you a number of, um, of what um, you could expect to receive in either the rental assistance program or the Shelter Aid for Elderly Renters program. Okay, so it's, it's that straightforward. This mathematical formula, you can put it in online, then get a sense of whether you can access these programs. That's, that's exactly right, yes. Has BC Housing uh, played, or what kind of role have they played? We have a lot of new folks uh, arriving in British Columbia on a regular basis. Uh, do, is there a role that uh, BC Housing plays with helping those folks get settled? Are you um, uh, speaking about refugees? Yeah, refugees for sure. If we if if that makes sense for this, sure. Um, uh, yeah, we do partner and have partnered with the Immigrant Services Society of nice. British Columbia, um, uh, assisted in the development of their new facility on Victoria Drive. Um, we we also worked with um, ISS. Uh, with refugee families, um, took uh, some refugee families into our own uh, direct managed housing stock. We we own and manage almost 6,000 units of housing across the province, most of it in the in the Lower Mainland, and also work with our nonprofit partners who also housed um, assisted in housing refugee families. Again, in partnership with the Immigrant Services Society of British Columbia. How many people work for BC Housing, Shane? Because boy, oh boy, you guys have really got uh, tentacles out into all areas we have about um, 700 employees and our our budget in the last fiscal year was 1.3 billion dollars wow and we assist about 105,000 uh, British Columbia households each and every day 
Wow. wow, that's extraordinary. You know, I think that's really good information to folks, uh, for folks to realize uh, how well a Crown Corporation can work and at a real grassroots level. Yeah, real partnerships with, uh, with, with communities, especially our nonprofit partners. One of the things uh, and stories that um, when I'm out talking with folks, um, uh, they're always amazed when I tell them about how many developments that we have under construction. So in British Columbia today, we have um, 62 developments under construction. They wow. comprise 2,700 units and a value of almost $600 million. We have another 75 projects under development. So those, the, that meaning that um, those, that meaning that um, those developments are funded, they comprise almost 4,000 units at a total value of more than a billion dollars. So those 137 developments are in various phases of construction and approvals, total um, 7,000 units and uh, $1.6 billion in, uh, in total value. Wow, that's extraordinary. We've been talking with Shane Ramsey, CEO of BC Housing. For more information, bchousing.org is their number. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So tax season, it's on us. The most wonderful time of the year, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Maybe for accountants or tax planners. Oh yeah, it's all good. Especially if you're getting a refund. Well, there you go. Check back from the government, free money, put it right into your RRSP. Right. That makes sense, right? It does. Yeah, or your TFSA, make that decision. But uh, we're being a a little bit um, lighthearted here because we're not talking about the happy times, unfortunately. Right, and it's not free money either, right? It's money that you've, you know, that you should have gotten in the first place. That's the way I look at it. it. It's your interest-free loan to the great government of Canada. (laughs) You gave them their money for a year and they paid you zero interest, but they gave it back to you. So that's nice, right? Exactly. Better than the alternative. Gave it. Back. That's true. No, you're absolutely right. So, uh, tips to have a f- stress-free tax time. Uh, I've yet to have one of those in my life. Uh, but the number one is know the rules. And that sounds very big and daunting, I have to admit. Yeah, you know, for the most part, things don't change a whole lot with filing your taxes. If you're a standard employee, you get one T4, maybe you've got some charitable deductions, some RRSPs or things like that. Year to year, not a lot's going to change for you, but um, you do want to check every year and see what's new and exciting with Canada Revenue Agency because there can be some things that can impact you. And definitely, if you're self-employed, you want to look with a much more fine-tooth comb because almost every year the government is making some changes that impact self-employed people. Hmm. Um, so a couple things for 2018 of what's changed. Um, there's now a medical expense tax credit for service animals. So in some cases, the cost of caring for a service animal can now be claimed as a medical expense. So hmm. this is something more and more that you see if you're flying or transit or things like that. A lot of people have service animals that help them deal with various maladies. And finally, the government is recognizing that that can be an allowable medical expense. So if someone's listening who has a service animal, I would say look into that and just see if there is in the ability uh, for you to get a greater refund by having that deduction this year. That's interesting. Um, Another one, and this is for anybody who's self-employed, is there's an accelerated investment initiative. And what this means is that capital cost allowance rates um, in the first year are going to increase. I know that sounds like a mouthful. And what it means is if you're a business person and you buy an asset, um, you're allowed to deduct some of the cost of that asset against your income over a period of years. It's called amortizing the asset. And the, the, the rate that you do it has called the capital cost allowance rate. Uh, the government wants to encourage small 
businesses to invest. So for certain categories, they've increased the amount that you're able to deduct on that asset, which mm. means all things being equal, you're allowed to deduct more on the asset, which would mean you'd get a larger tax refund um, at the end of the day. So those are a couple things uh, that actually would um, impact someone filing their taxes this year. Um, also keep in mind, if you've had a financial change, if you're suddenly self-employed and you weren't before, um, or if you're not self-employed anymore and now you're T4, um, make sure you understand the differences in how you're filing your returns. Um, and then finally, a piece of advice here is don't try to outsmart the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you are making a claim, make sure you've got some backup on it. You know, moving expenses are one that they love to audit very often. Medical expenses are another. So any deductions that you make, even though the government might send you back a refund thinking that they've accepted everything, they have the right to come back and potentially audit those returns uh, for a period of a few years. So make sure you keep all of your receipts and all of that and make sure you have a basis for any deductions that you do claim. Wow, that's really good advice. And that's a bit scary to know that they can uh, come back even after they've sent you that refund check. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and one more, Elaine, just on that, that just kind of jogs my memory, but I'm seeing less and less of this, but it is out there and this is tax scams. Right. So people falling prey to those, it's almost always the same type of a model, but things change, whether it's artwork or software or something, but you buy something, say for $10 and they give you a tax receipt for 100 150 oh, $1,000 okay. sometimes. Okay. So that when you get that bigger tax receipt, um, you put it basically on your tax refund and you get or on your tax return, you get a bigger tax refund. I have never, never seen one of those schemes that actually worked. I've had so many people in my office in tears, despondent. Sometimes their whole family have done these approaches where, again, common sense a little bit. If you're only paying $10, you should be getting a $10 deduction receipt. If there's something different there, it sounds like it's a scam and it's just going to be a short-term gain, a lot of long-term pain. The old smell, smell test, right? Exactly. If it doesn't smell good, it probably isn't. That's right. So uh, get it filed. And I think that's a really important important note. I mean, mm-hmm. you, if you owe money or think you owe money, or you know what I do? I just get it done by the deadline, period. Yeah, you just got to get it done. you don't know. Whether you owe money or not, it's still your responsibility. It's yes. the price of living in the society, the social contract is that you will file a tax return every year. Um, again, it's worse to file a, sorry to not file a return than it is to file a return that says that you owe money. CRA is going to take much more lightly to you if you've been compliant every year and suddenly you owe them a bit of money, they'll work with you. If you haven't filed taxes for five years, often they'll do what's called an arbitrary assessment where you'll be amazed at the information sources they have. They'll have all of your bank statements. They'll look at all the cash that's moved in and out of your accounts and they'll take the view that every bit of cash that you got was income and they'll probably deny all of your business expenses and then give you this massive tax bill that now you've got to try to disprove them. So it's basically, it's a tactic that they use to really get your attention to say, if you had just filed this return, we wouldn't have had to make this arbitrary assessment and cause you all these problems, you know, trying to disprove the numbers that we've got. So just get it done. Um, I have seen situations, not often, but I have seen them uh, where CRA can actually get someone arrested um, for not filing tax returns. So this is, you know, 20 years of of non-compliance or things like that. So this is really the last of the last straws there. You're probably not going to be arrested for not filing, uh, but it doesn't get better over time. File the returns. Uh, once you know what the what the challenge is, you know, once you get the, res- the assessment back, then you can deal with it. And just in case you're wondering for your, uh, for your 2018 tax year, 
April 30th is the deadline for 2019. April 30th, 2019. Yeah, it's important to know the deadlines. And thank you for that, Elaine. So April 30th, the return has to be in. And if you owe money, you've also got to pay that balance by this time. Now, if you're self-employed, they give you a little bit of extra time to get your return in. You got until June 15th, but you still have to pay for April 30th. So if you overpay, they'll give you the money back. If you underpay, you will be charged interest on that balance. So you've got to estimate what you think you'll owe. Um, and you have to get that that in there. Uh, so we get that that uh, payment in for that amount. Yes. Now, if you do file late, there's certain penalties that you have to deal with. Okay. And if you owe money for 2018 and your return is filed late, there's an immediate penalty of 5% of the balance owing and then 1% of the balance owing for each full month the return is late. So that can be pretty significant, yes, right? 5% significant. off the top. And that's just if you're just past that April 30th deadline. Right. You know, for any point past that. Uh, if you habitually file late, then CRA is going to increase the penalties. So if you had to pay a late filing penalty on 15, 16, or 17 tax returns, then in 2018, they increase the penalty to 10 percent plus two percent for each month so they double the price wow so it makes sense they want you to be compliant get the returns in on time and please pay the balance if you're able to do so at that point now be balanced smart if you're getting a refund so how can i be balanced smart well so we joked about it a little bit you know it really is your money it's not the government giving you money back that you gave them a nice loan yeah. uh, but keep in mind you know this is money that you weren't counting on so obviously you haven't spent it already hopefully so what can you do with it that's going to be of the most benefit right um, you know, if you're carrying debt, throw it directly to your debts to reduce them. You know, if you're in a consumer proposal, make an extra payment on it. Um, you know, that's going to be money that's going to save you because if you're carrying credit card debt, 20% interest on that, where else could you invest and get an immediate 20% return? Nowhere, right. right? But paying down your debts, you're getting that return just by, by reducing the balance. Um, you know, putting it into a TFSA or an RRSP, that's a great use for it as well. What a lot of people tend to do is they try to put some money into their RRSPs um, prior to the tax filing deadline so that they'll end up with a refund. Yes. And then they use that refund and put it into their TFSA. So you're kind of leveraging both and you're using both of those retirement vehicles and ideally they'll be there when you need them. Yeah, and your bookkeeper or your tax person will be able to give you some advice too on how best how best to do that or explain it to you as well. And that's exactly that's, right. Yeah, it's a great idea. Uh, pay what you owe and plan ahead is number four. Mm-hmm. When you owe money for taxes, make sure you pay your balance owing in full on time. And then you talked about the the uh, fines that exist, mm-hmm. the uh, debt compounds daily, which is also something to keep in mind. Exactly. A bit crazy. I'm not crazy. I shouldn't say that, but yeah, important to know. Yeah, it's, it's not credit card level interest, but it is significant. Uh, and CRA's interest rates can change. They can change every three months. You know, as of now, it's about 6% uh, for overdue taxes, CPP and DI premiums. Um, but yeah, it's not a balance that you'd want to keep going. Exactly. So listen, if any of this is resonating with you or you're thinking, oh boy, I didn't pay my taxes 2015, 2016, 2017, and I am in debt and I am in a bit of a pickle, or I'm just really uncomfortable where I am right now in terms of uh, debt or your financial situation, go see Blair, go see the folks at Sands & Associates. Check out their website, sans-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Get that consultation and to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.